0: Hey everyone, welcome back to a new video. I know it's only two stories, but I hope you still enjoy. And remember, if you have your own story, send it to southerncannibal.com and stay off drugs. I know I sound like an after-school special, but seriously, stay away from that stuff. It's bad. Oh, and of course, remember, to always stay hungry. My boyfriend C and I have been together for eight years. In the spring of 2019, we decided to finally find an apartment and move in together. We're both college students and we didn't have a ton of money, so our options were limited. While searching, I came across a relatively cheap studio apartment in downtown Minneapolis, only a five minute bus ride from my college. After talking it all over, we decided that this was the place. While it was in a sketchy neighborhood, we were smart kids and knew how to keep safe. Our parents were a little nervous, but nevertheless supportive. We moved in two weeks before my 21st birthday. We were so excited to finally have a place of our own and it didn't matter how small or dingy. Anyway, as time went on, we began to realize why the apartment was so cheap. We would often need our apartment to be fumigated for roaches, appliances wouldn't work, druggies would break into the building, and packages would be stolen. All of this was upsetting, but things that could be ignored. Things are going fine until the summer of 2020. Over the summer, my boyfriend and I decided to move in with my parents while keeping our apartment. With the pandemic raging, we knew we would want to be able to see our families, and we thought the communal living wouldn't be the safest of choices. While we were gone, new tenants had moved in. When we came back in early August, we discovered that the couple across the hall from us had moved, and a new woman had taken her place. We'll call her Nancy now nancy was a middle-aged woman i'd like to say early 30s but with all the drugs we later came to find out she was doing it was really hard to tell her real age seeing as they had aged her quite a bit it took a while for us to realize that our previously quiet neighbors had moved and nancy had taken their place after passing her in the hallway and watching her enter her apartment we came to understand but that's when things got weird We noticed a man coming around the apartment late at night. He wasn't a tenant and he made it clear by banging on the outside door. He would yell and kick at the door and scream for Nancy to come let him in. At first, we thought he may be her boyfriend, but we could tell quite quickly that that was not the case. We emailed management about this as he kept coming around very late at night and our window overlooked the door. We could see anyone and everyone who would come and go. They thanked us for notifying them and to keep them updated as necessary. This was on the 13th of August. The second incident happened on August 20th. By now, we have met both Nancy and Nancy's boyfriend, Justin. Nice enough people. They kept to themselves, but they liked a party. On August 20th, around dinner time, there was a very loud pounding on our hallway door. It's a big metal door that management had installed a lock-on to lessen the chances of homeless getting into the hallway of residences. The banging went on for a good five minutes and consisted of shouting and threats. It was hard not to notice. Eventually, we heard Justin let the gentleman in, and we then realized it was the same man as before. Justin denied the man entry into their apartment, going as far as to lock him out of their door. The man then began kicking their door, and then telling them to, open the fuck up. Justin did, but left the slide lock on. At this point, my boyfriend was watching the interaction through the peephole and he watched this gentleman pull a gun out of his pants and then flash it to Justin. The door was then shut and unlocked. The man entered and the night was quiet. A little shaken, we considered calling the cops, but instead, decided to simply email management. To this, we got no reply. Just a short three days later, though, August 23rd, we did, however, decide to call the cops. This time, the same thing happened, but the gentleman was never let into the apartment and he pulled the weapon out in the hall, claiming he was going to shoot. He left before the police arrived. Again, we emailed management and received no response. By now, we were getting pretty nervous, as our neighbors were a clear threat to us. Now, in between the last event and the one I'm going to detail, there were many shouting matches between Nancy and Justin. Many more times did their friend come back and make a scene, but it was very much the same as before, including but not limited to breaking our hallway door by kicking it and pulling off the handle. Now, September 8th, this happened. And it's one of the three events that has made me jump every time i hear a loud noise around noon i was in class on zoom of course and from my desk with my headphones on i could hear another fight ensuing across the hall i prayed for it to be something that ended as soon as it started but i was not so lucky within literally minutes the fight escalated from screaming to then hitting punching and throwing Nancy was screeching that she was going to kill Justin and that he was killing her. Shakily, my boyfriend went to the door to get a better idea of the seriousness of this fight. After she continued screaming, I decided to call 911, explaining to the operator that once again the tenants were fighting, and she told me the cops were on their way. Then, there was a noisy thwack and loud scream. Before we hung up, Justin swung open the door with blood pouring from his head. I informed the operator that Justin was bleeding and to send an ambulance. When the first responders showed up, Nancy refused to open the door. The cops were talking to her through the door and she kept insisting that it wasn't them that had been fighting. This may have been believable had there not been a trail of blood leading from their doorway. After about 10 minutes, Nancy finally let them in and she then explained that she had been liking you guys' photos on Facebook, and Justin got jealous. So he then threw her phone, leading them to get into a fight. One thing led to another, and she picked up a hammer and hit him on the head. No charges were filed, and everyone went on with their day as if nothing had ever happened. I, on the other hand, was traumatized. No more than a week later, Justin was back at the apartment, Their nightly fights continued, and you could almost hear a collective groan of all of our neighbors the night he came back. We later came to learn that Justin was never actually a tenant, only Nancy was, and that they were likely doing favors for their friend. We saw him come around occasionally, but not as often as before. He did, however, manage to get a key. He always came with an empty duffel bag and left with a filled one. I had the suspicion that they were working with drugs and that he was the dealer. Anyways, on September 16th, the morning after my 22nd birthday, I woke up at around 8am to a quiet sobbing sound. I couldn't exactly distinguish who it was or where it was coming from. I was a bit hungover and I wasn't sure if I was fully awake. I walked to our window to get a better breeze in when I noticed three cop cars outside of our building. They were all standing there questioning Justin. Oh, great, I thought to myself. I walked to our door, where sure enough stood Nancy giving a tearful story to an officer. I shook my head, and I decided to go back to bed. Around that day, I was again in class, when a loud shriek broke the silence. My stomach dropped, and I got a weird feeling. She walked over to the door and heard a few people in panicked voices from across the hall. There's a woman crying over there, he told me. I want to go check on her. She sounds hurt. I got up and checked, and I heard it too. There was also a man saying, Fuck! Fuck! What now? And a shout. No, I told him. Call the cops. You don't know what's going on. Within minutes, cops had arrived. C had just gotten off the phone with the dispatcher when six cop cars and an ambulance pulled up. The cops and paramedics were led into the building by one of the downstairs tenants and escorted up to the apartment. Within minutes, a woman was escorted out on a gurney bleeding heavily from a stab wound in her abdomen. We later came to find out that neither Nancy or Justin had been home, but the three of their friends had been there hanging out. One gentleman was tweaking on whatever they were dealing with and he got upset by something the woman had said, so he stabbed her. Until we called management, they had no idea what happened. When they came to visit Nancy to inform her that one more strike and she'd be evicted, she cursed at them through the door and told them to be more compassionate. I was arrayed. The last straw came not even a week later, at 4.42am on September 19th. I then woke up to a blood-curdling scream of Nancy. I leapt out of bed, shaking. I grabbed my phone and tearfully begged the dispatcher to tell the officers to hurry. The screaming went on for about 20 minutes before an officer arrived. Again, like all the times before, C went down and let the officer in. He pounded on the door and demanded to be let in. Both Justin and Nancy denied him entrance. Furious. I thought like all the times before, the officer would simply walk away, but this time he took action. This time he told them they would either open the door or he would kick it down, as he was the first officer to ever actually be present for their arguments, and that he heard claims that Justin was going to kill her. Within two days, Nancy was evicted. I'm still really afraid that she'll send someone after us since she knows we got them evicted, as the last officer didn't make it so secretive as to who called and reported them. While she was friendly to our face, we could hear her making threats after each time the cops had been called. I'm excited to say that after I graduate this spring, we will be moving, and hopefully, never have to experience these kind of things ever again. If only we knew a short year later, that very same complex would be shot up by none other than our upstairs neighbor. Thankfully however, we moved out eight months before that occurred. the man described as daryl my dad's old high school buddy the 40 something year old antagonist of one of my life's more traumatic events which all took place back in 2015. it was a warm fragrant springtime afternoon and i was an 18 year old kid coming home from a day of class at the local community college coming home to my dad's anarchist trap house that my friend and i decided to move into as roommates a year before It was a small one-story downtown house in an upscale neighborhood and it had five to seven vagabond guests or couch surfers at any given time that's up to ten people under one roof or two if you count the shed conflict was inevitable i entered in through the side gate from the well manicured street facing front into the neglected junk filled back there he was sitting in his crooked worn-out metal table placed right in my path to the bent-up screen door. Daryl was dressed in his finest filthy brown hobo jacket as he carved his latest piece of stick art. He looked up at me with glazed eyes and an absent expression. This struck me as odd, since although he was weird, he wasn't usually this weird. When I looked closer at his table, I saw why along with his usual random pieces of metal and rocks that he used for his wands. There was a blackened glass tube, a lighter, and a four-fifths empty-gallon jug of raw gut gin, the gin that I had watched him bring home with him the night before. The night before, he had been partying, having fun, and acting fairly normal, but the presence of the charred stray shot glass pipe on the table explained how he stayed awake this whole time. The contents of this pipe, which were soaked into a screen made from the strands of a copper wire scrubber, can be deduced logically, yeah, crack cocaine. I gave Daryl a modest greeting, to which he then responded with an awkward head movement and an unfriendly grunt. As he then continued to aggressively carve the stick, his body language gave me a dark vibe, full of animosity. What I experienced while walking in was unusual but nothing too crazy to me. I've seen worse in that house, and I had such st- a chip on my shoulder. I was almost itching for some kind of altercation to take my anger out on, at least on a daily basis. If this was my opportunity to protect my territory, I would do it with pleasure. I was a massive stoner and a bit of an alcoholic at the time, and upon arriving home, I usually would have stopped by my friend's room to say hi and smoke a bowl or two, But he was at his mom's house that night, which meant that, unfortunately, he was not able to witness the events that would be taking place over the following couple of hours. And although I did have substance abuse issues, I was still an honor roll student. So instead of smoking a bowl, I went straight back to my room to get some economics homework done. I had worked for about 45 minutes before focusing became impossible due to loud noises and all of the yelling from the kitchen which was just beyond the hallway entrance, mere feet from my bedroom door. This was simply not something I could tolerate, so I grabbed my 2009 digital camera, as I didn't have a smartphone back then, and I made my way to the heart of the commotion. Holding my camera, I entered the kitchen to find my dad and his two tough biker friends huddled together near the sink. Daryl had more or less cornered them, His arms were outstretched, making his hobo jacket appear like brown wings as he held up his largest stick in one hand, like Rafiki's staff in The Lion King. When I had walked in, I said nothing to alert him to my presence. I simply held up the camera to record him as he then verbally spilled his darkest demons on all of us. He was belligerently screaming at my dad and his friends, but his biggest target was Joe our lovable old biker dude who had been my dad's friend my whole life and who had never treated Daryl with anything but friendliness and respect. Daryl was just screaming about how he was a racist while Joe continued to deny it, raising his voice to match it. While I can't speak for Joe's personal beliefs, I will emphasize that Daryl didn't face any sort of discrimination under our roof. I mean, he may have felt disrespected at times, but his behavior was often unacceptable and any confrontation was well-deserved. During one of his loud, drunken, barely coherent rants, Daryl had begun hitting all of the wooden cabinets with his stick, pairing his screaming with the crazed rhythms of a wild man. I continued to hold the camera out towards him, making no attempt to hide it or leave the room, all the while he creeped his way towards me, whacking each cabinet along the way. Now, you may see me as naive and crazy to do this, but I was filled with excitement. My desire to record him was mainly for evidence, but it was also partly inspired by my love for the YouTuber Nuggets, aka Psycho Kid. He turned his head to face mine at an unnatural speed. His face then scrunched into a scowl as he laid eyes on me and my camera. With his rod gun gin breath, he got up in my face, waving his stick around in hand, as if this was to threaten me. Get that camera out of my face, boy! He slurred. I cursed back at him in defiance and held firm as he tried to grab it from me. We wrestled back and forth from my green digital camera for about 10 seconds as it continued to record. Fortunately, I was able to get it back. And as I did, he moved to get close and intimidate me again, more aggressively now. Even though he was 10 inches taller than me, A ten-year-old me had a tendency to be numb about situations like this, and my fear response had lessened with time. Having spent the previous three and a half years self-harming and on the edge of unaliving myself, I had already embraced death. This wasn't the only time I put myself in dangerous situations that year, almost hoping for violence. I was also incredibly territorial and protective of my family and all the people I care for, and being extremely insecure. I was very sensitive to any perceived disrespect to myself or the house. As Daryl towered over me, my right hand rested around the closed lid of an empty cookie jar sitting on the kitchen table. At that moment, I knew that if he got out of hand, that jar would be my last resort. I loosened my grip on the jar, pushed Daryl away, and I watched him move back from me and then make his way to torment my dad and his friends again. I took this opportunity to put my camera back in my room, and I came out a minute later to find that my dad and the biker dudes had gone to my dad's back room. Daryl had gone back to his dirty mattress in the dark shadows of the living room in front of the house. Things had lulled, and I still had homework to do, so I went back to my room. About a half hour, darkness had fallen outside, and things were too quiet. Something had to be wrong. I wanted to check on my dad and his friends, so I left my room and I found myself alone in an eerie grimy kitchen with the lights on and dark windows facing the night. There was a soft mumbling to my right. Dara was kneeling in the dim rays of light, cast from the kitchen to the contrasting darkness of the living room. He was holding two billiard balls that he had taken from the pool table, one in each upward-facing hand and outstretching arms his head rolled back to face the ceiling in a perfect position to channel demons like an antenna. Like his head, his eyes were rolled back as well, with only the bloodshot whites being visible. As his head gently jerked around with his satanic mumbling, the dim light reflected off his bald scalp. His unkempt salt and pepper goatee was speckled with foamy dribble. Seconds after I saw him, he jolted into life like an animated corpse. His face then contorted into a hatred that I haven't seen before or since, as he launched toward me from a kneeled position, still holding the pool balls in each hand. Thinking quickly, I grabbed the cookie jar, and with Daryl close on my tail, retreated to my dad's room. Fortunately, the lights were on, and the room had a door connecting to the backyard. He caught up to me there, so I pushed him back into the ragged wooden table in the corner, which broke under his weight. He quickly recovered and he sneered back at me as he then bolted from the wreckage. As he did so, I stumbled out the back door, tripped backwards down the two concrete steps and landed on the cement patio bordering the grass. Timing condensed in that moment. All of this occurred in just a few seconds. When I landed, the cookie jar on my right had been broken and I was bleeding heavily from a large gash in my palm caused by the broken porcelain, but there was no pain. I wound up pitching my arm from the position on the ground, and as he was about to make his way through the back door, I then launched the jagged remnants of the cookie jar through the air. Lucky strike. The cookie jar crashed through the glass window in the back door and hit Daryl squarely on the forehead. He went limp, and he collapsed onto the floor of my dad's room. He didn't get up it was his turn to bleed. Having faced this entire situation alone, I made my way to the shed to find my dad, his 60-year-old biker friend, and Joe's other biker friend. I opened the shed door, and they were all just sitting in a close circle whispering to each other, all tough men cowering in this tiny one-room living space in the corner of the yard. These three grown men left 18-year-old me all alone to fend for myself in a house with a violent psychopath, but I forgave them. They genuinely all seemed terrified, and I was thanked profusely by all of them for solving their problem. I appreciated the ego boost, but we still had two problems. I was bleeding heavily, and Daryl was unconscious and bleeding twice as much as I was. I was then advised to wrap my wounds, get in my car, and drive the 25 minutes to my grandma's house in the woods. I bled in my car all the way to my grandma's house. When I was there, I soaked my wounds in soapy water, hoping to avoid getting stitches, since I still didn't know if I was considered a criminal or not, and wanted to lie low. About 20 minutes into soaking, I got a call from a number I didn't recognize. I had a feeling that it was related to the events that had just taken place. And I was correct. It was the deputy from the sheriff's department at the scene of the crime. I was quaking, but I explained to her exactly what happened in complete honesty. Her response filled me with lightness like a helium balloon. It was self-defense, she had said, and Daryl was obviously blacked out and having a psychotic episode. According to the police, Darrell was found lying in a pool of blood on the front porch, A neighbor had called the police, and when they arrived, Daryl had woken up and began to attack them, screaming about racism. Apparently now, he believed the police were racist, and that they were there to harass him. He believed that he was becoming a victim of racist police brutality, and he decided to attack the police before they attacked him. He attacked a female police officer, too. Not cool. After learning that, I got back in the car to drive myself to the emergency room and continued to make a bloody mess of the whole thing for a whole 25 minutes there. That night, I stayed over at my grandma's house. When I went back to my dad's house the next day, I learned a few details from my dad about what happened after I left. Daryl had bled so much that my dad and his friends were unable to absorb it faster than it was coming out, even after using all the towels in the house. It was at that point where they dragged him into the front porch. They just wanted to be done with him and they let society deal with it. Daryl got treated to the hospital himself that night, and he spent the next two weeks in jail for disorderly conduct. I'm happy to say that he never came back to our house, and I never saw him again. In a sense, my dad and his friends were right. I did solve a problem. That guy was a squatter and a menace, and now he's gone. Best part? He was so messed up on drugs he could hardly remember what happened. He thought that it was Joe the biker who hit him. He has no memory of ever fighting with me. Now, seven years later, this event still stands out to me in the story of my life. I learned a lot from spending a year living in an anarchist trap house, but the biggest thing I learned is to always stand up for yourself in your territory, even when it makes people not like you, and to always watch out for tweakers whenever they drink cheap gin.